Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is the book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features Jennifer McMahon at Carver County's Chanhassen Library. Jennifer McMahon's unique brand of suspense straddles the line between conventional mystery and supernatural thriller. Her novels have been staples on the New York Times bestseller list since her 2009 breakout, Promise Not to Tell. McMahon's latest, The Winter People, boasts a consistently eerie atmosphere and some of its darker, supernatural flights are reminiscent of Stephen King, according to USA Today. It was an Indie Next pick, Library Read selection, and Amazon Best Book of the Month for Mystery in February, its debut month. McMahon is also the author of My Tiki Girl, a well-received GLBT young adult novel included on ALA's Rainbow List for 2009. Thank you. Thank you, Amelia, and thank you everyone at Club Book and everyone at the library and all the people who've worked so hard behind the scenes to make this amazing reading series happen. I'm so happy to be here. And I feel sort of right at home. You know, I got off the plane last night and it was cold, and I went for a walk this morning and it was cold, and I said, ah, I know cold, I'm from Vermont, I can do this. <laughs> so I feel I'm with kindred spirits here. <laughs> um, so yes, I am Jennifer and I write creepy books. I always feel like I'm at a 12-step program when I say, I'm, hi, Jennifer, yeah, I write creepy books. Um, the Winter People is my sixth kind of spooky psychological suspense novel full of lots of twists and turns. Um, I have done ghost stories, murder mysteries. I did a book about a little girl who was kidnapped by someone in a white bunny costume. I did a book about a girl who disappears into the woods after telling her brother that she's met the king of the fairies there and she's going to cross over into fairyland. Um, I've done serial, I did a serial killer book. So I've kind of gone to some dark and creepy places and that's just sort of where I'm, I, I'm naturally drawn to the dark and the creepy, to the dark side. Um, you know, when you, when you go to school for writing and when you're in writing classes, you hear this, this saying again and again, write what you know, write what you know. And my own personal little motto is write what scares you. <laughs> and so that's what I tend to do. You know, I, I write about the things that, that keep me up at night and that I, you know, the, the big what if questions. Um, which is funny because I, if you know me in real life, you will learn that I am the world's biggest scaredy cat. I am the one who goes to the scary movies and screams the loudest and is there covering my eyes saying, I can't watch this. And you know, I read a scary book and I have to put it down. I just read a really, a really terrifying book, um, The Demonologist by Andrew Piper, which I highly recommend if you like the, the twisted and the scary. And it's really smart, but I literally had to put it down because I was too scared. And I turned all the lights on in the house and I said to my partner, I can't read this anymore tonight. It's scaring me too much. And I was, the man made me afraid of ladybugs. 
The next day he had a little something about a ladybug being evil in there, and the next day a ladybug came down at me on the porch and I screamed and hit the deck. Um, so yeah, I get, I get scared and I, I'm drawn to writing about the things that keep me up at night and there's the big what if questions. And for the winter people, the what if question was, what if you lost someone you love, a, a husband, a wife, a child, and what if there was a way to bring them back and to see them one more time? Would you do it, no matter what? Even if you didn't think, you know, even if the repercussions could be horrible and they might not be the same, would you do it? And that was one of the things that, that got me going on this journey. Um, the Winter People is, begins in 1908 in the fictional town of West Hall, Vermont. And it begins when Sarah Harrison Shea, a farm wife, is found brutally murdered in the field behind her family's farmhouse. And as we get into the book, the story is told through Sarah's diary entries. And we learn that she has recently lost her beloved little girl, Gertie, and that in the final days of Sarah's life, she came to believe that she had found a way to bring her little girl back. Creepy stuff. <laughs> um, and then in the present day in The Winter People, we have 19-year-old Ruthie and her little sister Fawn, um, who are living in Sarah's house in the present day, and they wake up one morning and discover that their mother has gone missing, and she's mysteriously disappeared without a trace. And this is a woman who barely goes to town, much less does anything crazy like disappearing. And as they start searching around for clues, one of the things they find is Sarah's journal, and their journey takes them on this crazy path, and they come to discover that their mother's disappearance has something to do with Sarah Harrison Shea and what happened all those years ago with her and with a really dark, spooky secret over 100 years old. Um, so that's, it's lots of layers of creepy. Um, the Winter People came to me the way all my books do. I have this, <laughs> through a series of kind of ideas and images, and I, I have this belief that writers are a little bit like magpies. You know, we're always kind of wandering through the world looking for little shiny objects and things to bring back and weave into the nest that becomes our book. And for me, shiny object number one for the Winter People began years ago when my daughter was much younger. She's 10 now. And um, at the time, she liked to play these games. And the games were very much like improv exercises in an acting class. She would give me these scenarios and characters and say, let's go with it. And that day's game went something like this. She said, here's the deal, Mom. We're sisters. You're 19. I'm seven. You wake up in the morning, and I've crawled into bed with you, and I tell you our parents are missing. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at my little girl thinking, I've warped her. <laughs> this is terrible, my poor little child. And I'm I said, missing, what happened to them? And she said, they were taken into the woods. And I'm like, oh, I'm devastated. And she just said very, shrugged and said very matter-of-factly, sometimes it just happens. <laughs> and now I know I've totally warped my little girl beyond all <laughs> repair and that I'll be paying for therapy years down the road. But, you know, but a little light bulb, my shiny object moment radar goes off. And I'm like, you know, that kind of sounds like something that belongs in one of mommy's creepy books. And Tella said, yeah. So I went and got my notebook. And she got really excited because I started writing down notes. And she was, she was helping me. And I said, OK, two sisters, parents disappear, wake up in the woods. And I said, well, what do you think happened to them? And she's thinking, and she said, maybe there's a secret door. I said, oh, yeah, that's a good secret door. Maybe there's a secret door. And she said, maybe it was Bigfoot. <laughs> oh, Bigfoot, that could be interesting. So I'm writing down Bigfoot. And then she thought for a while, and she said, Mom, maybe it was the aliens. And I, yeah, it could have been. Who knows? So I, I write, and I start thinking, and we're talking about it. And 
the idea doesn't really go anywhere. You know, I've got this little germ, but nothing else comes, and it's not enough to base a whole book on. So the beautiful thing about ideas is you can put them away and save them for later. And so I took this little scrap of an idea, and I put it away and just kind of let it go. And I actually literally have something in my office, my idea box. I, I made it several years ago, and it's, um, it's bigger than a shoebox. It's a black cardboard box, and I've decorated it with like pictures and little quotes that I find to be inspirational. And I write, I, I'm always dropping index cards and little scraps of paper, and sometimes I'll print something out on the computer and I'll put it in there. And it's like this magical cauldron almost, and I think that things happen in that box that I, I have no control <laughs> over. It's almost, I, I have this sort of crazy belief that, you know, if you, if you get an idea and acknowledge it and give it life, it's almost like it acts as a magnet and draws other ideas to it. And so I put my idea in the box and I just think, one day I might use it again. And, and when I get stuck on other projects or if I'm stuck in the middle of a book or if I don't know what to write next, the first thing I do is grab that idea box and I dump it out on the table and I, I find all this inspiration. It's really wonderful. So I put my idea in the idea box and I went on with my life. I wrote a book about a serial killer who, who cuts women's hands off. And things were good. Life was good. You know, I, I did that. I was really excited. The book was doing well. I was touring. And my agent said, well, what's next? I said, I don't know. And I'm pitching him all these ideas. And he's like, eh, maybe, maybe, maybe. And he said, you should try something bigger. You should try something with a historical aspect. I'm like, historical? I can't do historical. That would require research. And I don't know if I could do that. And I'm kind of fighting within, thinking about it. And then one day, I start writing. I get this character in my head. And I start writing this story about a man who was a Civil War soldier in the Union Army. I don't know where he comes to me. He just comes to me from out of the blue. And he's marching home from the battlefield. And he's from Vermont. And he's, he's left. He's deserted. And I'm not quite sure why. Something traumatic has happened to him, as would happen in the Civil War if you're in battle. Um, but he's from Vermont. And most of what I'm, I'm writing is just flashbacks about his earlier life and his boyhood growing up on a Vermont farm and how he married the love of his life. And, and I'm writing all this, and I'm kind of wondering where it's going. It's not really going anywhere, but I'm kind of loving the character, and I'm thinking, it's historical. My agent's going to love it. He's gonna, if I tell him I'm writing something about the Civil War, he'll, he'll be over the moon. So I'm going along, and then I realize, I don't know anything about the Civil War. <laughs> I need to like, go back to school. I need to do a little learning. So I started doing a little research and looking at books and reading about Vermont in the Civil War and, and trying to learn about my guy. Um, and one of the things I did is I got, I, Got the Robert Burns documentary, the Civil War documentary. Oh my gosh, that is an amazing piece of filmmaking. Um, so I'm watching the documentary, and there's this one little thing in there. And here's shiny object moment number two. There's this one little bit in there about Abraham and Mary Todd Lincoln's young son dying in the White House. And Mary Todd was, of course, you know, incredibly grief-stricken, and she's lost her child. And she believed that the little boy came back and visited her, came back from the spirit world and visited her. And she started having seances in the White House and became a spiritualist. And I, the you know, shiny object moment, I'm like, wow, what's this all about? So I start reading about spiritualism at the turn of the century. And before I know it, I've let go of my Civil War book idea. And I'm like, I want to write a book about a spiritualist in Vermont at the turn of the century. And so I kind of moved forward in time. And I'd, I'd been with my Civil War soldier, Martin, for a while. And I was really attached to him. So I took him out of the Civil War, and I pretty much kept his character the same, and I turned him into a, a farmer who'd had a really hard time. 
And you know, he and I had marched for miles, and I was attached to him, and I couldn't let him go. And I turned his wife, Sarah, into my spiritual, the woman who was going to become my spiritualist. And I got all excited, and I'm reading about spirituals, and I'm reading about seances and table wrapping, and I'm, I'm reading such great stuff, and I'm getting all inspired, and I had no idea what was going to happen. But that's, it's part of the magic of writing for me. I don't outline. I just, I never know where I'm going to go. I start with an idea. I mean, here I was starting an idea about writing a book about the Civil War, and all of a sudden I'm writing about a spiritualist. Things go in crazy directions, and that's part of the fun. It's, it's the journey. It's like each book is this amazing, twisty, turny journey. Um, so I'm writing, and I think, well, they're going to have a child, and she's going to die in an accident, and Sarah is going to believe she can communicate with the little girl. And I'm, okay, this is good, good, good. So I'm kind of going with that, and I'm writing, and I have the accident happen, and, and the way, maybe because I was doing all this research about spiritualism and reading about spirit writing, but the way that I best got Sarah's voice down was when I wrote her diary entries out longhand. So everything that I did from Sarah's point of view, I wrote in my notebook. Everything else I was typing on the computer, but I somehow got stuck when I went to do Sarah's voice and did the computer. And so every, and her story is told completely through her, her diary entries. So I would sit down and I would write, and I never knew what she was going to say. You know, it almost was like spirit writing. Sometimes she would throw, she would throw in something that I was not planning on that would just kind of turn things around, and one day, I sat down and I was writing a diary entry from her point of view, and I got this line, next shiny object moment, and the line was, the first time I saw a sleeper, I was nine years old. And I, I just went, whoa, <laughs> what's a sleeper? And I got chills, and I had no idea, but I knew whatever it was, it was scary, and that my whole book had just changed in a really dramatic way, and I had to keep writing to find out, to find out what a sleeper was. And as I kept writing and got further into it, I realized that I wasn't writing about a woman who believes she can communicate with her dead daughter. I was writing a story about a woman who believes she can bring her dead daughter back. And, it, and the book just took on a whole new life of its own and got thoroughly creepy. And it was around this time that another a little bell went off and I remembered that book idea that I had way back when for the two sisters with their missing parents. And I thought, ah, the two sisters, they are going to live in Sarah's house in the present day. And they're going to wake up one morning, and their mother's going to have disappeared. And somehow, I'm not sure how, but somehow it's going to be connected to what happened to Sarah all those years ago. And, and the book just kind of took off, and it was exciting and, and multi-layered. And, um, and that is how I began. And I, you know, I, I meet a lot of writers. And some writers outline like crazy, and some writers don't, and I don't. <laughs> and for me, like I said, the, the thrill of the book is just not knowing what's going to happen next. You sit down to write a book about the Civil War, and you end up writing a book about a woman who believes she can bring her dead little girl back. Um, so it's pretty exciting stuff. It's pretty magical. You know, I, I can't believe that I get to actually stay at home and get paid to do this magical thing <laughs> every day. It's really fun. I never know where it's going to take me. Um, so I thought I could read a little bit, if folks want to hear some. Um, let's see. One of the things I, I often do, because I told you the story of, um, of the original inspiration for the book being my little girl, I ended up dedicating the book to her. 
So I like to read the dedication. I usually do it when she's in the audience, but I, I'm going to do it tonight because I just told that story. And the dedication is for Zella. Because one day, you wanted to play a really creepy game about two sisters whose parents had disappeared in the woods. Sometimes it just happens. And I didn't tell her that I was dedicating the book to her. And I, when I got the finished copies, which is another kind of exciting, magical moment, because you know, you've been working for so long on this book, and all of a sudden, this box arrives, and there are actual physical copies of your book. And you don't quite know how they're going to look. You've seen pictures of the jacket. But you pick it up, and it's this real solid, tangible thing. And it's like, ah, oh, this is my book. Isn't it beautiful? And I looked, and I, I handed it over to Zella. And I said, open it up to the dedication page. And she opened it, and she read. Her eyes got really big, and she got this big smile. And she looked at me and she said, Mom, can I bring it to school and show my friends and my teachers as long as we promise not to look through for any bad words? <laughs> and I said, absolutely. And she brought it to school and she came and I said, so how'd it go? And she said, great. And she had sold like 12 copies of the book, I think. She went around to the librarian, to the math teacher, the computer teacher. She was passing out bookmarks. Was, she should have been taking orders. <laughs> it was great. She's my, my little PR person. She's awesome. Um, so yeah, I thought we could, we'll start a little bit. And I think what I'll do is I'll start with, um, as I said, the, the backstory is told, Sarah's story is told um, through her diary entries. And also in the 1908 storyline, I kind of counter that by having several chapters of her husband, Martin, who's kind of the, the rational one in the story. And he, you know, they've lost their little girl and he, He's watching his wife, but he, he believes she's descending into madness. She's seeing things and hearing things and acting crazier and crazier. So I, and I decided to keep his voice in there. So I've got his voice in there too, but a lot of it is told through Sarah's diary entries. And I will start with, my, um, with the line that changed everything. So this is January 29th, 1908. The first time I saw a sleeper, I was nine years old. It was the spring before Papa set Auntie away, before we lost my brother Jacob. My sister, Constance, had married the fall before and moved to Graniteville. I was up exploring in the woods near the Devil's Hand where Papa had forbidden us to play. The trees were leafing out, making a lush green canopy overhead. The sun had warmed the soil, giving the damp woods a rich, loamy smell. Here and there, beneath the beech, sugar maple, and birch trees were spring flowers, trilliums, trout lilies, and my favorite, Jack in the pulpit, a funny little flower with a secret. If you lift the striped hood, you'll find the preacher underneath. Auntie had shown me this and taught me that you could dig up the tubers and cook them like turnips. I had just found one and was pulling back the hood, looking for the tiny figure underneath, when I heard footsteps, slow and steady, moving my way. Heavy feet dragging through dry leaves, stumbling on roots. I wanted to run, but froze with panic having squatted down low behind a rock just as a figure moved into the clearing. I recognized her at once, Hester Jameson. She died two weeks before from typhoid fever. I had attended her funeral with Papa and Jacob. 
seen her laid to rest in the cemetery behind the church up by Cranberry Meadow. Everyone from school was there, all in Sunday best. Hester's father, Irwin, ran Jameson's tack and feed shop. He wore a black coat with frayed sleeves, and his nose was red and running. Beside him stood his wife, Cora Jameson, a heavyset woman who had a seamstress shop in town. Mrs. Jameson sobbed into a lace handkerchief, her whole body heaving and trembling. I had been to funerals before, but never for someone my own age. Usually it was the very old or the very young. I couldn't take my eyes off the casket, just the right size for a girl like me. I stared at the plain wooden box until I grew dizzy, wondering what it might feel like to be laid out inside. Papa must have noticed, because he took my hand and gave it a squeeze, pulled me a little closer to him. Reverend Ayers, a young man then, said Hester was with the angels. Our old preacher, Reverend Phelps, was stooped over, half deaf, and none of what he said made any sense. It was all frightening metaphors about sin and salvation. But when Reverend Ayers, with his sparkling blue eyes, spoke, it felt as if he said each word right to me. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. For the first time, I understood the word of God because Reverend Ayers spoke it. His voice, all the girls said, could soothe the devil himself. A red-winged blackbird called out, Conqueree, from a nearby hazel bush. He puffed up his red shoulders and sang over and over, as loud as he could, his call almost hypnotic. Even Reverend Ayers paused to look. Mrs. Jameson dropped to her knees, keening. Mr. Jameson tried to pull her up, but did not have the strength. I stood right beside Papa, clutching his hand, as dirt was shoveled down on the coffin of poor Hester Jameson. Hester had a crooked front tooth, but a beautifully delicate face. She had been best in our class at arithmetic, in our class at arithmetic. <clears throat> Once, for my birthday, she gave me a note with a pressed flower inside. A violet it was, dried out and perfectly preserved. May your day be as special as you are, she'd written in perfect cursive. I tucked it into my Bible, where it stayed for years until it either disintegrated or fell out. I cannot recall. Now, two weeks after her very own funeral, Hester's sleeper caught sight of me there in the woods, crouching behind the rock. I shall never forget the look in her eyes, the frightened half-recognition of someone waking from a horrible dream. I had heard about sleepers. There was even a game we played in the schoolyard in which one child would be laid out dead in a circle of violets and forget-me-nots. Then someone would lean down and whisper magic words in the dead girl's ear, and she would rise and chase all the other children. The first one she caught would be the next to die. I think I may have even played this game once with Hester Jameson. 
I had heard whispers, rumors of sleepers called back from the land of the dead by grieving husbands and wives, but was certain they only existed in the stories old women liked to tell each other while they folded laundry or stitched stockings, something to pass the time and to make any eavesdropping children hurry home before dark. I had been sure, up until then, that God, in his infinite wisdom, would not have allowed such an abomination. Hester and I were not 10 feet apart. Her blue dress was filthy and torn, her corn silk hair in tangles. She gave off the musty smell of damp earth, but there was something else behind it, an acrid, greasy, burnt odor, similar to what you smell when you blow out a tallow candle. Our eyes met, and I yearned to speak, to say her name, but could only manage a strangled-sounding hiss. Hester ran off into the woods like a frightened rabbit. I stayed frozen, clinging pathetically to my rock like a bit of lichen. From down the path leading to the devil's hand came another figure running, calling Hester's name. It was her mother, Cora Jameson. She stopped when she saw me, face flushed and frantic. She was breathing hard and had scratches on her face and arms, pieces of dry leaves and twigs in her, tangled in her hair. Tell no one, she said. But why? I asked, stepping out from behind the rock. She looked right at me, through me, almost, as if I were a pane of dirty window glass. Someday, Sarah, she said, maybe you'll love someone enough to understand. Then she ran off into the woods following her daughter. So that's a little bit from, um, from Sarah's point of view, from her diary entry, and I thought I would end with a very short section from um, Martin's point of view, just to give you a little balance. So um, this takes place, this little bit I'm going to read is about, takes place about 12 days after Gertie's death, um, and Martin's been very worried about Sarah. She's not doing well. Um, I mentioned several years ago she lost her infant son Charles, and he's mentioned in here. And she just she had a very hard time getting over that. And he knows that Gertie's death is probably going to be the thing that pushes her over the edge because Sarah and Gertie were so close. Um, the only other thing that I mention in here that you would need to know is Lucius is mentioned, and he is Martin's brother as well as the town doctor. <clears throat> and this is Martin, and January, and this is, I will also say that this is the scene in the book that scared me the most when I wrote it. <laughs> this was the one that gave me the most thrills and chills, and whew, I, I kind of get chills still reading it, so we'll see, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Martin, January 25th, 1908. And I know some folks are following along in their books, and it's page 113. Um, the noise woke him sometime after midnight. A scratching, a scuttling. His eyes shot open, and he lay in the dark, listening. Pale moonlight came in through the bedroom's frost-covered window, giving everything a bluish glow. He stared up at the plaster ceiling, listening. The fire had died down, and the room was cold. He inhaled, then exhaled feeling as if the room were breathing with him. 
There it was again, the scratching, nails against wood. He held his breath and listened. Mice? No, too big for mice. It sounded like something large trying to crawl its way out of the walls. Behind the scrabbling, he heard what sounded like the rustle of flapping wings. He thought of the chicken he'd found in the woods this morning, another one of their hens taken. Only this time, it didn't seem like the work of a fox. He found the carcass up near the rocks. The chicken's neck had been broken and its chest had been opened up, the heart removed. He didn't know of any animal that would do a thing like that. He'd buried the body in the rocks, tried to put it out of his mind. His own heart thudding now, he felt the bed beside him, expecting to find Sarah's warm body, but the bed was cold. Had she gone into Gertie's room again? Were the two of them hidden under the covers, giggling? No, Gertie was dead, buried in the ground. Sarah, he called. He'd been sick with worry over Sarah these last days. She had stopped eating, would not leave the bed, would not feed or wash herself. She seemed to get weaker and less responsive with each passing day. Honestly, there's nothing we can do but wait, Lucius told him. They had been standing in the kitchen, speaking in hushed voices. Keep trying to get food and water into her, give her the tonic, offer whatever comfort you can. I keep thinking about, how when we lost Char about when we lost Charles, Martin said, how sick with grief she was. He didn't want to say what he was thinking, not even to his own brother. This time it was worse. This time, he feared, she might not come back to him. It was one thing to lose poor Gertie, but if he lost Sarah too, his life would be over. I don't want to frighten you, Martin, Lucius said, but if she doesn't come around soon, I think it might be best if we sent her to the state hospital for the insane over in Waterbury. Martin's whole body went rigid. It's not a terrible place, Lucius said. They have a farm. The patients get outside every day. They would keep her safe. Martin shook his head. She'll get better, he vowed. I'll help her to get better. I'm her husband. I can keep my own wife safe. But as far as he could tell, Sarah was growing worse with each passing hour. And now, here it was in the middle of the night, and she was missing. Sarah? He called once more, listening. And there it was again, the scratching, tapping, fluttering. Louder this time, more frantic. He sat up, scanning the room in the darkness. He could make out the edge of the bed, the dresser to his left, and there, in the right corner, a form hunched, moving slightly, pulsating. No, breathing. It was breathing. The scream stuck in his throat, coming out as only a hiss. He looked around frantically for a weapon, something heavy, but then the thing moved, raised its head, and he saw his wife's long auburn hair shine in the dim moonlight. Sarah, he gasped, what are you doing? She was sitting on the floor in front of the closet, wearing her thin nightgown, her bare feet as pale as marble against the dark floor. She was shivering. 
She did not move, did not seem even to hear him. Worry nodded his insides like an ugly rat. Come back to bed, darling. Aren't you cold? Then he heard it again, the scratching claws against wood. It was coming from inside the closet. Sarah, he said, standing on shaking legs, blood pounding through his head, making a roaring sound in his ears. The room seemed to shift around him, growing longer. The distance between himself and Sarah felt impossibly far. The moonlight hit the closet door. He could see it move slightly, the knob slowly turning. Move away from there, he cried. But his wife sat still, eyes fixed on the door. It's our Gertie, she said calmly. She's come back. And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Jennifer McMahon and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from a woman wondering what authors and pieces of work inspired McMahon to become a writer. Going way back when I was a kid, I was a big, um, I, I read a lot of Nancy Drew, of course. My grandmother got me a Nancy Drew Book of the Month Club subscription, so every month a new Nancy Drew book would come. And she got my brother the Hardy Boys, and he had no interest in the Hardy Boys. He was reading Spider-Man comics, so I read, I read Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. Um, and also way back then, I think that one of the books that I read that made me really want to become a writer when I was a kid was Harriet the Spy. You guys remember that? Oh, Harriet is so wonderful. I just, I, I reread that to my daughter a little while ago and it's just as wonderful today as it was back then. Um, and then actually I, when I was in college, and so, I, and I started writing, I wrote my first story in the third grade and it was about a haunted meatball. And in some ways, my writing has kind of come full circle. You know? I'm still writing about the, the haunted things. Um, not quite as goofy. I wish I still had my haunted meatball story, but sadly, my mom seems to have thrown it away. Um, but I, I was hooked from that moment on because, you know, here I had a piece of paper and a pencil, and I could create this world where I could make anything happen. I could make a meatball die and come back to life and haunt the kid who had eaten it and roll around and be green and, and haunt people's... I mean, I could make anything happen. It was magic. It was super exciting. And, and also the thing that really got me then was my third grade teacher, Mrs. Brennan, um, told me it was good. You know, she said, this is really good. And I had never heard anyone say that before, that I could do something that an adult was telling me was good. And she said, you should write more. And then she actually did a, a summer seminar between third and fourth grade for kids teaching creative writing. And she learned, I learned to keep a writer's notebook and I learned about simile and metaphor and I took it seriously. I was pretty hardcore. And, um, and I've been keeping a journal ever since and writing ever since. And when my first book was about to be published, Promise Not to Tell, I started thinking about all the people who'd had an impact on me and, and how I wouldn't be there without certain people, professor that I had in college. And I went back and I was like, I really wouldn't be here without Jan Brennan in third grade, Avon, Connecticut, Topath Elementary School. So I looked her up and I found her and I found her online. 
And I've sent her an email and said, I'm sure you don't remember me, but way back in the 70s, I was just some goofy kid in your third grade class, and I wrote a story about a haunted meatball, and I'm about to get my first novel published, and I wouldn't be here if it weren't for you. And she wrote me back, and then we became like pen pals, and, and she sent me actual letters, and I sent her actual letters, and I sent her a copy of my book, and she was just so thrilled. And, and I, I think teachers don't get enough recognition for the, the ways that they shape and encourage our, our young folks. Um, so yeah, so I started writing in third grade, and then I ended up studying writing in college, and I studied poetry. And I didn't study fiction at all, and I studied poetry for, in college, and then I did a year in graduate school studying poetry, and I accidentally started writing fiction, because I realized, I got kind of bored writing poetry, because my poetry was all like me, 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 very confessional, like my broken life, my broken love affairs, oh, it got really old and boring. And so I started trying to tell stories in my poems, and I was writing these long, elaborate prose poems, and they got longer and longer. And then one day, I started writing a prose poem that was like 10 pages long, and then it was 25, and then it was 50. And I said, this isn't a prose poem. This is a short story. And it kept going. And I'm like, oh my god, I'm writing a novel. What do I know about writing a novel? With a, you know, poetry had taught me a lot about language and metaphor. And, and I could do all that, but I couldn't. You know, with the, Fiction has to have something called a plot. <laughs> Without it, you can write these beautiful passages, but it's going to fall flat on its face. So I um, was entirely, the plotting thing was entirely self-taught. I just started reading a lot and started thinking about the things I liked to read and really reading them and studying them and devouring them as a writer and trying to figure out, well, what makes this work? And, and I'm still learning. I learn something new every time I write a book. You know, every time I sit down to write, it's all a learning experience. I still have a lot to learn. Our next audience member asked McMahon if any of her books have stood out as a favorite. And that is such a hard question. <laughs> um, I, I love them all so much. And people always ask me that, and I never know what to say. And I, I think usually it's whatever book I'm out promoting, because it's the one that my head is in. Um, but I'm also, I have a, a great, great fondness for my, the first book that was published, Promise Not to Tell, because it was my first book published. And I spent so long with the characters. And, and I feel like there's a lot of me in that. Well, there's a lot of me in all my books. Um, but, and as far as miss, I miss all my characters, and I think about all my characters. I go back, I have dreams about my characters. And my, you know, I, I put the end at the end of a book, but that's not the end for me. You know, it's kind of like, I think about my characters the way you think about like your old college friends who you don't hear from ever, you know, and you wonder, oh, whatever happened to so-and-so? And you kind of imagine what lives they might have now, and you think about how, when, how they were when you last saw them. And that's exactly how I am. I feel like they're, they're a part of me, and they were a part of my life, and they go on living in my mind. Um, the book that you mentioned, My Tiki Girl, I, I, you know, saying that I've written six books, I've actually written seven books. I wrote a young adult book that did not do fantastically well and is out of print now, but it, I wrote it, it was wonderful, um, it is out there in the world, and it, it, ha it came out around the same time as my second novel, and I was doing a lot to promote my second novel, and I didn't do a lot to promote My Tiki Girl. But, you know, and I have a soft spot in my heart for that one too, because it was my, my first and only YA book. And actually it was, it was written as an adult book, and it was a lot darker and creepier, and there were murders, and there were all these terrible things that happened, and my agent read it and said, you know, I think that you could, you could turn this into a really great YA book. And I thought about it, and I was like, I think I could. And, um, but, you know, it, it just it didn't do that well, but that's not saying the door is closed entirely. I may try to go back into YA or, or even middle grade fiction again. You know, I, I'm sort of drawn to that, especially now having a 10-year-old you know, who wants to read my stuff, and I'm very hesitant to let her read anything I've written. Um, so I'd, I'd like to re write something that she could read. That said, I was asked to write a short story for a YA thriller anthology, and I worked really, I don't do short stories because I can't do short, 
You know, I, I start writing a short story, and it, I'm like, oh, here's the beginning to another novel. Um, so I worked so hard on this short story, and I thought it was good, and I showed my agent, I showed my editor, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and I turned it in, and they had asked me to write it, and they got it in the, the, um, the editor, I think it was R.L. Stein, and he and the other folks said, this is way too dark. You can't <laughs> this can't be in our anthology. Can you tone it down? And I decided not to, so it's sitting in a drawer somewhere, my short story. It does involve missing teeth. It's a little creepy, but I thought, you know, it's young adult, they can handle it. Oh, it's a thriller anthology. This question asker wonders how long does it typically take for McMahon to write a novel? A year, two years, depends on the book, depends on what's going on in my life. My uh, publisher would be happy if I could come out with a book a year, and that's what I aim for, but it doesn't always happen. Especially, I feel like my books are getting more and more complicated. Like The Winter People was way complicated for me to write. I had several storylines, I had the historical aspect, the part that was taking place in 1908, and I felt like I was doing something completely different and was in way over my head, and I did a lot more research, and that takes time. And you know, I don't want to rush through something. I don't want to turn in something that doesn't feel done and like it's the best that it can be. Um, so you know, it might take longer as I go along, and it depends on the, the complicated story. And of course, now that I've done something complicated and multi-layered and something with a historical aspect, that's what, that's what I want to do. I'm kind of addicted. And so the book that I'm working on now takes place in, the, in a small town in Vermont at a family-run motel. And it takes place in the 50s, 60s, 1980s, and today. So I've got a lot going on. It's take, I feel like I've <laughs> kind of bit off more than I can chew, but it's taking a long time to work it all through and to make it make sense. Another audience member mentions that McMahon is very invested in the characters she creates and asks if she ever mourns the loss of a character in her books. I do mourn the loss of my characters. I, I don't, I've never like cried at a public reading. Like, <laughs> not yet anyway, maybe I might tonight, I don't know. Um, no, and I, I do, it's, I, there are characters that I have and sometimes really bad things happen to my characters and I think how could I do that to that poor person who I loved and had all this invested in them. Um, and I, I think, you know, more than mourning the loss, I think I, I am grateful that I got to spend time with it. It's kind of like going back to the old college friend thing, you know, I, I think of the time that we spent together and they'll live on in my mind, like people I've known in real life who have passed on, you know, I'm going to remember them for who they were when they were here and with me. This question is a popular one for Club Book audience members. What is McMahon currently reading? What am I reading right now? I just on the plane finished the scary book I was telling you about, The Demonologist by Andrew Piper. It was so scary! And I actually got a galley for his new book that I'm sort of afraid to start, but I'm going to start it. <laughs> um, but it was incredibly creepy and wonderful. And, you know, I read a little bit of everything. I try to read the scary stuff. I read mysteries. I read, you know, I've been reading a lot about, like, nonfiction about motels in America and for my, for my book. And um, I've been reading a lot about Alfred Hitchcock and his life and biographies on Alfred Hitchcock, because Alfred Hitchcock is a presence, in a sense, in the book I'm working on now. So I, I read all kinds of stuff. And I do like to, and I, you know, I read scary books, and I get so scared. I really do. And it's like I, I can't stop reading them. Like, I can't turn it off, but yet I, I'm drawn to it, but I'm so scared. And turn on the light. And seriously, I was afraid of the ladybug after reading the Andrew Piper book. <laughs> Our next question is about how McMahon is able to clear her mind of previous plots and characters from past books when starting on a new novel? It's hard, and it, I am a really scattered person, so honestly, I'm not writing just one book at once. I, even though I'm working on one book, I've got like sometimes two or three sort of on the back burner, and it's really, it's, 
I don't know how I do it. I, you know, I, um, I think that once a book is done and finished and turned in, part of my brain just lets it go and says goodbye to it. And then I do, I become completely, and I've usually, what, honestly what usually happens is, so I write a book and the draft is out and it's all together and then I work on revising it for so long that while I'm revising it, and so what happens is you know, I'll do a revision and then I'll turn it into my editors and they'll have it for a month or two sometimes. And while that's happening, I'm working on something completely different. And, so, and that's good for me because then my brain is in this other world and then when they give me back my revisions, I can go back into the, the book that I'm supposed to be working on and see it with fresh eyes. And it's, it's a lot of world jumping, but somehow or other I keep it together. <laughs> and yeah, and I don't want to do the same thing over and over. That, you know, I do want to do some, there are some, there are certain themes, you know, writers always have themes that are just going to keep coming back to them because it's part of our twisted psyche, I think. You know, I always, I have sort of, um, I write, I tend to write about young girls, sort of quirky, misfit, imaginative girls, and I think I'll probably keep doing that until the day I die because no matter, even if I try to keep them out of the books, they always find their way in and it's a voice that comes sort of naturally to me and, and I, my therapist could probably say a lot about that. <laughs> This audience member notes that the bios in McMahon's books portray a particularly interesting past for her and the job she has taken to support herself as a writer. Um, I have had a lot of interesting jobs. So I said that I, I was in uh, college studying poetry. And when you're a poet, you're, I mean, there's not much of a career in that, unless you want to teach, and I knew that I didn't want to teach. So I had this idea that I was going to write my poetry and create my art, but I had to be able to, you know, put groceries on the table and make a living. So I did whatever, whatever was out there. Um, and I have done a little bit of everything. I have worked on farms. I was once, for a few weekends, I dressed in an Easter bunny suit at a, <laughs> a mum farm in Connecticut. And I handed, and that was a huge, you know, I told you about the, the second book, Island of Lost Girls, has a little girl being kidnapped by someone in a rabbit. And that definitely, I, I called upon my memories of that. Because you're there and you're in the suit, and this, the people in the suit scare me. You know, I go to Disney and I'm like, ooh, because you don't know who's there behind the mesh eyes. It's really creepy to me. And I was that person. I was that bunny who just silently waved and handed balloons and lollipops to the little children. And, and children are so trusting and loving, and they come up and they give you hugs, and you hug them. And I could be anyone. It's creepy. And the suit's kind of dingy and white, and who knows who else has worn it. And it's, um, so I did that. Uh, I've done, I've worked with folks with mental illness. I've worked with kids with behavioral disturbances. I've, I've done all kinds of things. I've I house painted for several summers. Um, I actually house painted for almost a year after college. I just did whatever it took to pay the bills, you know? Um, and then I, when I was in grad school, I was delivering pizza. <laughs> Not very glamorous at all, especially in Montpelier, Vermont, and the houses are far apart, yeah, and it was cold. And so I delivered pizza. I've done a little bit of everything, except for like highly skilled stuff, because I don't really have any, <laughs> any skills. Um, and yeah, and so then when I wrote, when I decided to write my first novel, and I wrote my first novel, and I got an agent, I was working in a community mental health center, and I was completely burned out, and I was not liking it. And I, I loved the folks I was working with, but I didn't like that I was being pulled away from working with them and spending more time like doing office stuff and more time on the phone, battling with social security and doing case management type stuff, and I was just totally burned out. And so I got an agent, and my agent said, oh, I really love this book. And I did a really incredibly stupid thing. I quit my job, which I tell writers to never do. Don't quit your day job. <laughs> but, um, and, and my partner and I were living in the woods. 
in this sort of semi-idyllic, we thought at the time, setting where we were building our own house and like growing our own food. And she said, you can quit your job. We've paid for the land. We're building the house. We've got everything we need. I'm going to support you waitressing at this little cafe. And we were living without electricity in this like, well, we lived up the hill in this old hunting cabin while we were building our house. And so I would write out my first, I would write, I'd be writing longhand. And then I would bring it on my, bring my laptop to the little cafe she worked in and type in the morning. Anyway, it was, it was hard. <laughs> it wouldn't be a club book event without this question. What does a day of writing look like for Jennifer McMahon? I always want to lie when people ask me this, but I will tell you the truth. Um, I, I don't have a normal day of writing. You know, if I have a deadline, I will work really, really hard. But I am really scattered. And anyone who works from home probably knows you need a lot of self-discipline. And I don't have a lot. Um, so if the writing isn't going well and I'm there in my office with my kitty cats and in my fuzzy slippers, um, I can very easily say, oh, there's dishes that need doing. And how about the laundry? That needs folding. Oh, I guess I haven't scrubbed behind the toilet in a while. I could do that. Um, so the world is full of distractions for me. But I try to write every day. I, I get up with my daughter. She gets up quite early. Um, and I get her all ready for school. I take her to school, and then I come home. And then, honestly, I spend a little bit of time in the morning, sometimes a lot of time, doing, you know, answering emails and dealing with businessy type stuff that I need to deal with, Facebook and, and all that stuff, um, and trying to answer emails from fans, which I try to answer all of them. Um, and then by that time, I realize, oh my gosh, I better get cracking if I'm going to get any pages done today. And then I'll sit down and I'll write until my brain can't function anymore, which is usually, you know, one-ish, lunch-ish time. And then I take a walk. And then I come back and eat something and look over what I've done in the morning and kind of keep going with it or revise it, depending on where I'm at. Or I can go scrub behind the toilet if things aren't going well. <laughs> and I, I also, I, I'm so easily distracted. And I can get completely lost in research. You know, like I'll, I'll, the online world is wonderful, but it's just a time suck. And it's like a black hole. I'll be looking up like Civil War weaponry. And the next thing I know, I'm looking at things and getting ideas for whole other books and a series of books. And I'm, I'm just, and then I look at the watch and I'm like, oh boy, it's time to go pick Zella up from school now. There's a day gone. Um, so I actually know the places I can go in town, the little places where I can bring my laptop where they don't have Wi-Fi. And I get a lot done then. <laughs> and I do. There's a really kind of not very good Chinese restaurant that I sometimes go. And I sit and I drink endless cups of coffee and order not very good Chinese food and sit for hours. And, and they put up with me because they don't have many customers. And they're friendly. And I'm friendly and I tip well. So <laughs> I sit and I can't, I can't get online there. Our last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what Jennifer McMahon is currently working on. My working title of my current novel is 29 Rooms, and it is about a motel that has 28 rooms. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, yeah. I was, um, and it's, I was inspired by a couple of things for this book. I, um, I learned that I used to, in, I live in Montpelier, Vermont, and right next to Montpelier, we have a little town called Barrie, and no one's heard of Barrie, Vermont, right? And I learned that Alfred Hitchcock and Shirley MacLaine came to Barry, Vermont for a world premiere of The Trouble with Harry in this little town of Barry, Vermont. And they came because Trouble with Harry was filmed in Craftsbury, Vermont. And so they did the world premiere in Barry, and it was a big deal. It was really exciting. The governors from all six New England states came. They had this huge state dinner with hundreds of people. 
And then they came in this big procession led by the police down the Main Street in Barrie. And Main Street in Barrie is pretty small. And just about everyone was out waving and saying hi. And it was raining. And everyone stood in the rain to, to meet Alfred Hitchcock and Shirley MacLaine. And I thought that was so cool. And I thought, you know, what would it be like to, to be a little kid watching this? And so that, that was the kind of the shining object moment for the beginning of, of my book um, of 29 Rooms. And it's very Hitchcock inspired. And also, I, I met a guy at a yard. There's also, down the road from Barry, Vermont, if you keep going, there's a really creepy, totally fallen down motel called Anne's Motel that the roofs are just falling in. And, and I could tell that someone lived there, like back in the house on the hill. And one day, I was having a, a yard sale with a friend. And this guy came down. And she said, that's the guy who lives at Anne's Motel. His mom was Anne, but Anne's gone. But he lives up there all by himself now. And so she's talking to him, and she's asking about the motel. And he said, yeah, you know, we, we had a great business. But once the highway came through, it ruined everything. And, and he was still living there at this place. And, and so that was, that was an inspiration for the book. And joining me has been very fun. Thank you. Well, that's it from our Carver County Chanhassen Library event with Jennifer McMahon. Catch our next Club Book event with Sue Miller at Washington County's Central Park Amphitheater in Woodbury on Thursday, September 25th at 6.30 p.m. Meet Sue Miller, hear questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, the Crown Plaza Hotel St. Paul Riverfront, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.